Hey, FFR listeners, this is engineer Rob Para letting you know that today's episode sounds a little zoomier than usual uh, because it was recorded on Zoom. Just use your imagination and pretend you're on the call and you're chatting about this classic film with the crew. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Femme Freak Radio heads. Pandemic Summer 2.0 has wound down. Now that it's fall, it's time for you to snuggle up with the feminist pop culture analysis you can only get from your good friends at Feminist Frequency Radio. And you know what would make everything even more cozy? Cuddling up with the community of listeners and supporters over on Patreon. Subscribers get early access to new episodes, bonus content, merch discounts, listener polls, and the occasional surprise treat. But when you sign up on Patreon, you won't just be supporting our feminist media analysis. You'll also be giving real, tangible support to our incredible games and online harassment hotline, which is our free, confidential, text message-based emotional support hotline. Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak to sign up now. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers, and they chose you. Like, that's not lost upon me that, of course, mm-hmm. they chose him. One of the most kill-tastic countries. We had already started to, the death machine around the world. I had to look up how many times we had invaded Korea, essentially. I didn't realize that our invasion of Korea started in the 1800s. Hello and welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Ebony Adams and Anita is out tripping the life fantastic somewhere in the world. I don't know where. So I am in the driver's seat for today's episode. Strap in, everybody. Today's episode, we're going to be discussing The Manchurian Candidate, the 1962 psychological thriller from John Frankenheimer. It's going to get weird. I hope. Stay tuned. I want to welcome two special guests today because you know what Nita wasn't gonna leave me out to talk about the Manchurian Candidate. That episode will be 17 hours long. I want to welcome Dr. Kishana Gray and Paul Spencer. How are y'all doing? Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for having us and hosting us, Ebony. Appreciate you. Of course. Now, Kishana, you are currently the associate professor in writing, rhetoric, and digital studies at the University of Kentucky. Can you tell us like the elevator? summation of the work you do? Oh, absolutely. Um, I love this question. It's my favorite question because I love talking about myself and my work. Yes. Um, but I, I explore, you know, people's experiences in online gaming spaces. So in your in the chats, in the communities, in the lobbies, online, in the Twitter spaces and social media spaces, if people are talking about games, I'm there observing and watching and interviewing and mm-hmm. analyzing and talking a lot of shit about the institutions that are continue to fail minoritized people in gaming spaces. Elevator. Come page. on now. Come on now. (laughs) How long have you been doing this work? Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's see. Let's see. I did grad school from like 2007. I finished in 2011. So I've been doing it for a good for a hot minute now. Okay. I think 10 years since I got my PhD. So, woo. Wow. What's this year? 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Dang. Yeah. It's been a minute. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. I want to get into this with you. We probably will do it in the... um, in the bonus, but your our grad school years did not overlap at all. I'm 97 years old, so I finished my PhD in 2006, and since then have tried my hardest to forget everything that mm. I learned, studied, struggled with, whatever. We'll talk about that later. Yes, please let us do that. I would love to know that because that's actually a good thing. If you can do that, you're a lot healthier in life. It, this is the only reason I've made it this far. Absolutely. Now, Paul Spencer, writer. Bon vivant, raconteur, trouble, 
outlaw. <laughs> Redheaded stepchild. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the writing that you do. Now, I know you. We've known each other for years and years and years. Um, and so I know you as a screenwriter, as a novelist. Um, but tell us a little bit about your work. Well, I mean, I, I work on, um, you know, uh, with my scripts, to be honest, when I write by myself, I tend to write thrillers, you know, kind of the, there's a bag of money, there's 18 people trying to get it, you know, everyone's double crossing each other kind of thing. Um, but I've written with a lot of other people. Um, and that's always a different, very different kind of experience. And, um, you know, but with that, I've written comedies, dramas, uh, you know, other kinds of stories. When I, I've written a, a novel, um, couple novel, well, one novel for sure, and I'm working on a second. Um, the first was coming of age story that really didn't work. <laughs> uh -huh. And the, uh, the second though, is kind of a strange political thriller. I have a tendency to be drawn towards stories that intersect our personal lives with our politics and our ideologies and how they create motivation. I love you know, it. Because so, sometimes your politics is motivated, say, by your family. And sometimes your motivation is, is related to your situation. But it's, you know, there's always these complicated... I, I, I think often we, we, we minimize the complexity of motivation. Yeah. And that's one of the things, that's one of the things I try to focus on in my writing. I'm, I'm so excited for this conversation today. Kishana, like with your background in, you know, um, communication and rhetorics and different kinds of rhetoric, Paul, with, you know, your cinephile background, your writing and thrillers, like, oh my God, this is gonna, I might just shut up and let y'all talk. So let's get into it. Um, as I have mentioned to the audience before, I have been waiting to discuss the Manchurian Candidate for years now, basically since the podcast started. Um, it took Anita literally leaving the country for her to be like, okay, you can finally do this. Um, so <laughs> listen, we polled the audience twice. Once I was like, okay, the theme is bad mothers. Manchurian Candidate was on that list. People didn't select it. Finally, we're like psychological political thrillers. People came through for me. So. We're going to get to talk about this absolutely wild piece of cinema, all about monstrous mothers, Cold War sleeper agents, the wages of masculinity. We're going to get into it. What did they choose on Bad Mothers that wasn't this movie? Carrie, which is a solid choice. Okay, that's know? solid. That's solid. But exactly. <laughs> like, you know, we, I wasn't, you know, trying to like game the system or anything, but I have to admit I was disappointed. So I'm sorry. But you know, I actually I actually even though Carrie was a she was a bad mother, but you know, Angela Edsbury's the worst. <laughs> Listen, we are going to get into it. Oh my God. <laughs> real, real quick. For those of you who have not seen the film or for those of you who have never heard of it, you know, the, the phrase, a Manchurian candidate, you know, sort of in pop culture. I'm just going to give you the quick Wikipedia summary. So Manchurian candidate based on a novel by Richard Condon. It centers on a Korean War veteran, Raymond Shaw, who's part of a prominent political family. He is brainwashed by communists after his army platoon is captured. Once he returns to civilian life in the United States, he becomes an unwitting assassin in an international communist conspiracy, the members of which include like the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union. And their aim is to assassinate a presidential nominate, um, to, which is going to lead then to the overthrow of the U.S. government. So that's, that's kind of the background of the story. There's so much that we can talk about. Kishana, Paul and I have had like 17 phone calls about this. And he's like, I just want to make sure we talk about this. I just want to make sure we talk about this. And I'm like, save it for the podcast. <laughs> Don't burn the podcast, right? Um, Love it. Obviously, you know, because I put this on the Monstrous Mothers uh, poll, you know, definitely want to talk about Angela Lansbury, but not just mothers, but like the fear of the feminine at large, you know. 
Oh, absolutely. I mentioned I wanted to talk about like double consciousness, double speak. We want to talk about like the genre conventions of political thrillers, about nation building. There's there's really too much for us to get at in 35 minutes. So I'm going to throw to you, Kishana, when you watched the movie, had you seen it before we asked you to come on and talk about this? I saw the one with Denzel. Okay, okay. So I had a, I had a little bit of a context for it, right? But mm-hmm. I think I, this one hits so much more and so much better. Mm-hmm. Than, than the one with Denzel, right? So whenever I think whenever I first asked about it, you know, I don't spend too much time like doing like the background and seeing what it's about. But uh, whenever I was watching, I was like, this woman looks familiar to me. I was mm-hmm. like, who is she? I was like, Angela Lansbury. That name is so familiar to me. Why do I know this? And so I called my grandma. I was like, Your grandma was like Jessica Fletcher. Come on, murder she wrote. Yes, yes, yes. And I was, and I think I watched it through like a different lens because I, in my notes, whenever I was watching it, you know, I think the first thing of course you have to do is you know if anybody that studies like film and media stuff mantras mother is the first thing that you're thinking about but i wanted to i was just i i I, yes i did that but i also thought about this dynamic woman commanding the screen Mm -hmm. in the 1960s and thinking about what happened what was the background to even have such a woman in such a prominent role like for me i was like well the 60s you know Sinatra and I'm like Mm -hmm. I just I felt like she was very prominent but I was like maybe she's prominent because she's the villain so I guess I had so many more questions about the background and the casting and the directors and all that stuff and to really try to figure out okay she was a badass like in Murder She Wrote but I'm like I didn't know she was like a badass like back in the day too you know what I'm saying (laughs) right Angela Lansbury like we've got a little bit of like the graduate situation right because she's playing a woman she's playing the mother of five years old if that right you know right um so you have something very interesting going on with that kind of casting but yeah there's a way in which you know angela lansbury and janet lee whose role is smaller really sort of command attention in this movie over and above the work that the male actors are doing and the male characters are doing such that you are left thinking about them and about like the sheer power manipulative power that both of them possess and the utter incapability of any of the men around them to resist what they want to do yeah well the men the men are the men are falling apart and, and the men are having nervous breakdowns they're having all nightmares. of them right. all, all of them, of them. All they're of all them. emotionally out of control <laughs> like get your shit together men what is mm-hmm. this yeah and, and they're having all these breakdowns even like uh you know uh bennett marco's former his uh former friend uh, is it Melvin who, who you know, mm-hmm. you see him wake up from the cell, the guys from the same nightmare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so all these men are having these psychological disturbances and, and right. falling apart. And the women are the ones who are really in control of the situation. So much control. Holding and, things and, down. and so, yeah. you know, one of the things I was telling Ebony uh, before is, you know, and we may be jumping ahead of ourselves at the moment, but like, you know, one of the things about the movie, the movie is supposedly about the Cold War. And the dialectic between communism and capitalism and, or, you know, the, you know, the communists in the mm-hmm. USA. But there's this other Cold War going on, which I think the deep because the movie is about the subconscious, obviously, and about the mm-hmm. you know, brainwashing and, and all that. And, but the movie, you know, really gets into this, this, the real fear that I think the moviegoers left with. And they may not even realize it at the time when it came out is yeah. feminine power. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, you know that, that, you know, if you show weakness and when you're having weakness, <laughs> These women are going to take control and they're really manipulating you in this, even though you're in this night, the movie came out in 62. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this obviously this kind of like, you know, mad men world of, you know, yeah. men are supposedly, you know, the 
you know, the breadwinners and the yeah. rulers and the women and the, you know, the wives, but the wives are the ones are who are manipulating everything. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's very telling that one of the women that we're talking about is played by Janet Lee, right? And Psycho comes out only two years before this, which is another monstrous mother, fear of the feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, right. right. And so, and, and I think, so I think there's this other element of the movie that the real one, I mean, I think this movie is so layered, it's hard to get a handle on because there's so many things going on. Um, and there's so many things that the movie's about. But yeah. one of them is the idea that the real fear is matriarchal control. Yeah. I want to, can we talk a, about that a little bit? Because, you yeah. know, I'm always big about putting stuff into like his, historical context because media is really like a reflection of the times and what's happening. Yes. And so I guess it's not lost on me that, okay, the movie, you know, it's set in the sixties. Like we, we aren't too long from being out from what world war two. And then remember yeah. how, you know, women, Rosie, the riveter kind of right. thing, right. You know, women were in the workforce. We needed women to pick up the slack. You know, there were campaigns to make sure the women, were, Hey, get y'all asses out here and work all the men's gone to mm-hmm. war. Y'all got to come out here. We need y'all. And then the backlash when the men came back, right. uh, yes. we don't talk about that, about how a lot of women were like, I don't want to go back to the kitchen. I don't yeah. want to go back to the mm-hmm. home. What is this? And so, you know, you always wonder what are those private moments, you know, public and private moments, but really that private moments of like women were like, well, I liked working. I want to be out there. Why can't we? And then men were like, oh, my gosh, these bitches is actually good at their job. They might <laughs> compete with us. We right. got to get them back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I guess yeah, like, yeah. it's not it, it's not lost on me of, of like the, the timing of this um, and even the. um the release of there was like a really uh, of that feminist text. Oh, gosh, I got to look. I, I need to. I put it in my notes. Oh, the feminine mystique. Mm-hmm. And that was like that was um like a Betty Friedan. Mm-hmm. That was like a critique of like, you know, middle class. First off, we also need to put it in context. Women of color, poor women. I was going to say, yes. Working. Uh-huh. Right. So right. these are not these are mm-hmm. not our conversations. These are not right. the conversations our grandmothers right. and our aunties like we're having. Right. But really that that um, the feminine mystique was really like a push to like middle class women to like be like, hey, look at these poor women. They've got agency. They're already fighting for for better wages and better working conditions. And y'all just sitting in there letting the men tell y'all what to do and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. so I guess I was just fast. I'm always fascinated by the conversations that's happening and how it's like reflective. But you're at, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what you just said, Paul, but you're absolutely right. The conversations about these women that are out of control and we got to get them under control because, look, they're going to turn into communists. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Well, and, 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 and it also aligns it aligns women and feminine power with diametrically opposed to American capitalism. Mm. Yes. Uh-huh. Which mm-hmm. which which ties into what we're seeing with, like, say, unions or with, yep. uh, you know, yep. working mm-hmm. class or with, you know, it, right. it ties it, it kind of it, in, a, in a strange way. It subconsciously ties feminine power to, you know, communism, socialism, unionism, which I mean, we're still living with yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, you know, you know, a woman starts talking about, you know, uh, equal pay, all of a sudden everyone's acting like, oh, my God, it's socialism. You know, we're going mm-hmm. we're, we're mm-hmm. to you know, the Republic of North Korea, you know, or some yep. bullshit. And yep. excuse me, I don't know. Can we cuss on this? Yes. What if I said no? What if it was too late? What if I had to bleep your ass, Paul? <laughs> uh, sorry. So anyway, so so, you know, but I mean, I think I think it subconsciously does that. And, and it and and it's um you know that that's and you know there's so many things about this movie that are yeah. layered and disturbing and that's but that's one of them is is i think it leaves the audience when they walk out they think they think it's a movie about political assassination mm-hmm. but it's not right at, and they, at they all go, at all and they go home and they start thinking about it and it's deeply upsetting 
It is. And I mean, I have to say, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our conversation, Paul, is that for me, as compelling as Angela Lansbury is as a villain, and she is delicious as a villain in this film, she is not the most upsetting to me. Rosie, played by Janet Lee, is more upsetting to me. It's worth unpacking why that is, but from the very moment we meet her, when um, when Bennett is on the train having his breakdown, and you know goes into the you know connecting area between train cars, and then Rosie sort of like forces a conversation upon him and forces him to maintain communication with him, and then pushes through a relationship. Her manipulation of Bennett is much more. It's more, much more open. And it is more disturbing because the end result of it is ostensibly a much more benign end, which is, you know, home, family, marriage. It is the sort of thing that, you know, like uh, uh, the the middle class white American person is supposed to want. Right. But the way in which she goes about achieving it is so unsettling to me. And yet, yes. as an audience, was she a spy? That's the thing. I think I think the film very cleverly yes. plants that that notion in your head because she keeps the way that she talks to him when she says, like, I live at 34 Maplewood Street, you know, whatever. Right. Like to me, it that? sounded like that. Yeah. That was it's like code of like, right? Re- re- exactly. yeah. It's more conditioning. And so then the the understanding that, no, she's not a spy or at least you know, unrevealed. Right. You know, like the 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 realization that, no, she's just a woman. This is how women operate. This is how they trap men. This is how they condition them to behave that we want them to behave. And it's it's throughout. So I found her like the most upsetting. Um, I did too. Like El Dorado yeah. 5609. Like I remember the number and everything. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, okay, is this, is this, you know, going to be the twist, you know, that ultimately she was behind this or that, you know, there's an even larger conspiracy behind this, you know, let's be honest, kind of bumbling one between like these cartoonish Russian and Chinese agents, you know, in the amphitheater, like, come on. Right. But you know, so, comedy. Go ahead. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things that, you know, you got to go back to with that train scene though, is all the men in the unit were brainwashed. Right. All of them. Yeah. So Raymond Shaw may have been the assassin, so to speak, the assassin of mm-hmm. that the movie's about, but all the men in the unit were brainwashed. Right. And and you know, I think that that train scene, the reason that train scene is so freaking weird is because, and I, I think I told you something, but I think that part of what they're giving us a clue of is that Janet Lee Rosie is offering phrases that are triggers mm-hmm. to see if to see if to see if frank sinatra or bennett marcos bennett yeah. marcos is still conditioned and that's why mm-hmm. that initial conversation yeah. is so weird because she keeps tossing out the you know the dialogue doesn't make any sense you know right uh, uh, for a moment and she keeps tossing out these funny phrases like uh, you know whatever maryland's pretty he's like well we're in delaware or whatever it's like oh yeah ohio is great it's like She's tossing out these phrases that are, they don't make sense in any normal way of conversing, which tells me she's tossing out trigger phrases to see if Sinatra is still conditioned. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Make sure he hadn't been deprogrammed yet. Yes. And when she, I I mean, and obviously the idea of a woman who, after she meets a guy for 30 minutes, decides to bail him out of jail, dump her fiance and move in with him or whatever. Right. I mean, it's like, obviously, this is, she's lying. Right, right. You know, I mean, this is, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it, none of it rings true. Yeah. 
Now, I have I have not read the book, you know, upon which this is based. So I have no idea. Is there a reveal that actually Rosie is, you know? I, I haven't read the book either. And Richard- you know, so any listeners who've read it, feel free to hit me up on Twitter and be like, okay, y'all, this is, you know, actually what Richard Condon was doing and John Frankenheimer was, you know, you missed it, whatever. I'm happy to take my lumps. But yeah, I just, I found that so interesting. And, and I mean- when we when we talk about like the fear of the feminine and the the monstrous and I do mean that um, you know in precisely the connotation you would expect because it's not just Angela Lansbury um, I'm I'm blanking on Eleanor Eleanor Island right mm-hmm. yeah it's not just Rosie it's also that group of older women in the gardening society right like it is it is telling that this group of older women. Yeah, you know, are the stand-in for this manipulation and that for the communists and Soviet agents. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, and so you know, going back to what you were saying, Paul, about like the aligning of the feminine as being more naturally tending towards the collective. You know, the sort of communist ideals as if that is a sort of natural yep. affinity that needs to be guarded against because the the feminine, the female, will naturally attempt to manipulate towards those. Ends. Well, can I can I say right. two things around about that? Mm-hmm. One is, and I, like you, I told you the other day, I did a little research, and like and I, this is, you know, someone obviously can double check this, but like um, the women of the hydrangea society, it's interesting that Rose and Eleanor have names that are also flowers, mm-hmm. which are linked to hydrangeas. So, I mean, are linked. Not that whole conversation hydrangeas. was interesting that they yeah. were yeah. saying. They're, there. Go they're ahead. Linked yeah. to flowers, and so so mm-hmm. it's, there's a there's a there's a, a, a name symbolism going on there, right? Weren't they talking about one of the flowers is like an invasive species? Because that whole scene was messing me up because I didn't know what was happening. But wasn't Mm -hmm. it like one of those flowers was like an invasive species, like from Japan? And yeah, yeah, the hydrangeas. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the hydrangeas from Japan, but they they can't get the color blue. And, you know, it's like all this stuff. And uh, but, you know, but then we get Rosie and Eleanor, whose names are names of flowers. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a a linguistic link, you know, Mm -hmm. between those two characters and the hydrangea society. Yeah. And uh, which is, of course, the communist Soviet, you know, really, it's a double thing. And everything yeah. in the movie has all these doubles and and and, uh, and all yeah. that. And, um, you know, the other thing I was going to mention is and as someone who studies rhetoric. Um, I know you said you watched the movie, you know, to watch it again. <laughs> one of the things to really look at is and you may have noticed this, but how many times in the movie characters contradict things they've already said? Mm-hmm. Constantly, it, it, it's a weird, it's a weird thing they do where they. Um, yeah. so one is like for I mean, one the easy the, the easiest one is when they always talk about how Raymond Shaw is the kindest, warmest, you know, blah blah blah. But then mm-hmm. obviously he's a complete freak, and you know, at one point Marco even says, you know, yeah. he he's not just hard to like; he's impossible to like. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it has to do with like other kind of moments where like you know Marco says he's with the Office of Intelligence, but then he says it might as well be the Office of Stupidity, right? And and it, it, there, there, but there's all these linguistic moments where, um, like Raymond at one point says, you know, somebody asks him how does he feel, he says, I feel like I'm Captain Idiot um, of the of you know uh, Amazing Comics or something, and it's like, but that's mm-hmm. not, you know, that it's a contradiction. Mm-hmm. You know, when Marco says he de- he never understood the idea of more or less. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and there's, there, but, but but it's not just that. There's all these moments where these 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 contradictory, you know, they're going to dress up Raymond as a priest to kill the 
you know, kill the, the nominee when, you know, obviously a priest shouldn't murder people. Mm-hmm. Eleanor fights communism, even though she's a communist. Um, right. You know, anyway, it, the whole movie contradicts itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. at, at some point, almost everything everyone says or everything everyone says they are contradicts themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because a movie about capitalism and communism and the Cold War, the movie itself is a dialectic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a dialectic, though, internally, because mm-hmm. it, it and, and I think it's saying something about the nature of when you create a world where everything is broken out into either enemy or, yeah. you know, enemy of the state. It creates this weird dialectic where, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's impossible to maintain. And I think that's right. Part, I think that's part of why the men are breaking apart. Mm-hmm. Is that also I, I also looked at a lot of it and let me know if I'm not coming through. OK, but yeah, I looked at a lot of it as like a critique of the American empire. Like I didn't yeah. know how if there was because that's how I read a lot of it as, you know, critiques of masculinity, critiques of the American war machine. You know, I mean, it's now, um, you know, at the time, you know, it was Korea, Cold War, communism, um, critique of gender roles in the United States. And I even, you know, heard think about even the folks that they claimed to be communists were some of the most gentle folks, you know, yes, donating right. to the ACLU, so, yeah, totally you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there was a quote. Oh, my gosh. I have to I had to write this quote down. Um, think of when when the mother made the comment um, about, you know, the process of, you know, you know, becoming a spy selling out, you know, and she had to sell her son's soul or whatever to do it. She made the comment. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers and they chose you. Like, that's not lost upon me that, of course, mm-hmm. they chose him. One of the most kill-tastic countries, you know, right. that have, you know, we have a high murder rate, you know, we had already started to, the death machine around the world, you know, by that time, you know, this was like our, our, I didn't, I, I had to look up how many times we had, you know, been in, invaded Korea, essentially. I didn't realize that our invasion of Korea started in the 1800s. Like mm-hmm. the first time that we were there, you know, doing the colonizing thing, you know, it was the 1800s and I had no idea. So I think her comment to me is truly a reflection of, you know, settler colonialism, you know, imperialism. And, you know, and I think and, and of course, whenever they're trying to think about who are the best killers in the world, of course, our son's picked because he's an well, American. He's yeah. American born and bred. Like, yes, to everything you were saying. And it is rich that the film and the book upon which it is based, you know, suggest, at least on the surface level, that Americans have to fear incursion from the outside when this is a project that we have perfected based upon our teachers, our European teachers, you know. But the idea that, you know, that we are, you know, um, a nation of innocents who need to be protected against the machinations of these you know, older and wilier societies. And I think, you know, just going back real quick to the um, the idea of like masculine and feminine duality as set up in in the world of the film, it is it is important that we understand the way in which, you know, both Russians in the Soviet Union uh, and at the time, and uh, and Asiatic peoples were feminized in the Western imagination, right? And how they were aligned there. And so again, just you know, further solidifying like who, what sorts of peoples cannot be trusted, 
you know, because of their inherent natures. Paul, I think I cut you off. What were you going to say? Yes. Well, I was just making another comment though about, about the idea of the, um, um, the fact that her son becomes a killer, like Kenosha was doing, would also, mm-hmm. what that plays into though is, it goes back, I think, to what one of the subconscious themes of the movie is about the matriarchy, which is, even though on one hand it's about the Cold War and this dialectic uh, of the Cold War, it really is about the, the, the nature of the family. Mm-hmm. And that a powerful matriarch has this incestuous relationship with her son. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What kind of kiss and, was and, that in that one scene, too? No, no, it, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's much more obvious in the book, which I've read. I mean, I haven't <gasps> read the book, but I've read about it. Mm-hmm. But there is a incestuous relationship in the book that's made very clear. I haven't read the book, but it, 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 it's very mm-hmm. clear. And um, the mo- both movies actually touch upon it. But mm-hmm. um, mm. it, it taps into, I think, this idea that the, that the, that the feminine power subverts the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unit. Yep. Right. Yep. So unnatural. Fact, it's unnatural it's for this woman. Mm. Yes. And so the fact that she's unnatural and she does yep. unnatural things, like there's a, in fact, there's a quote in the movie where she talks to her husband when the, her husband and Raymond are fighting, and she says, "My boys." Yeah. Yes. And and right. and I know that that's kind of an expression that maybe some mothers would say, like, "Oh, you know, you know, in a in a gentle way or in a kidding way," but like. But they doing, element, they doing something with this. Yes, mm-hmm. there, there's something where she says that where she calls them both my boys, which implies A, she A, views her son one way, but also she views her husband as someone who is really someone else to control. Right. Which she does. Yes. And right. so there's this kind of like, you know, it, it's a loaded phrase in that movie. And, it absolutely um, is. Yeah. And so it, it, it's also tapping in this idea that the family unit is you know, being disturbed by mm-hmm. this kind of structure, structure. By, yeah. by that matriarchal structure. Right. And by and by women's like sexual power and agency. Right. Because remember, there is another woman in the film. There's there's another woman in the film, Jocelyn, who is, you know, Raymond's long lost love that he was forced to leave. Right. The and she is present. Yeah, she's presented in a much more idealized fashion. But when you contrast her with both Rosie and with um, Eleanor, she's much more childlike. She's much more solicitous and nurturing. So we see that scene where she comes upon Raymond when they first meet, you know, and she is presented as the sort of woman who, A, can be led, which is more appropriate. Right. right. Um, oh gosh, but yeah. someone who it is appropriate to desire. You know, in the way that Rosie and Eleanor are not appropriate objects of desire and her family, it should be noted, the mother is entirely absent. It's her and her father. Yes. And Raymond kills them both. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't even think about it like that. I mean, but you're absolutely, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't that pressed about their dynamic and I should have been, but I think that that's like really significant and uh, like, like really my mind is blown. Um, (laughs) <laughs> was the writers who was the writer can, can anybody give me some context for the person who wrote this well the novelist was richard condon who also yeah. wrote by the way Pritzy's honor a movie with yeah. Jack nicholson and uh yeah angelica houston but he wrote a lot of weird political books and, and he was a very strange writer um mm-hmm. very interesting writer um he said richard kinder who is what's his name richard, yeah richard condon condon spell it spell it c-o-n-d-o-n yeah 
Okay. But the screenplay was adapted. So I, I yeah, Georgia, George Axelrod, who has, you know, did things like seven year itch breakfast at Tem- Tiffany's. So, I mean, just like, not bad. yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know, you got some powerhouses here um, putting this film together. So, I mean, as weird as this film is, and I cannot express to the listeners enough, if you have not seen it, this movie is way more weird than you would expect it's a wild ride. it to be. You know, it is not the straightforward political thriller that you would expect it to be. Every time it sort of zigs one way, it zigs another way. It is distancing. It's alienating at every level. Even the casting, I think, is meant to be, you know, off-putting in a way. We, you know, we talked about um, Angela Lansbury being only a few years older than the actor who plays her son, <clears throat> excuse me, Lawrence Harvey. But also Lawrence Harvey has got that like mid-century mid-Atlantic accent thing going on where you're like, where the fuck is this dude supposed to be from? Because he is not from, he's not from New York, you know? Like, this is clearly a British dude, Um, you know? Like, it is, it is as if we are watching some sort of play acting going on, you know? That may have been kind of almost planned because the movie- Yeah, I think so. It's about, you know, and like I talked about, it's about doubling. Everything's a double. Mm -hmm. Everything is Mm -hmm. a, everything is a double of each other and and a contradiction of each other. And so- you know, um, it, it's a very troubling movie because it's so unsettling on almost every scene. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, you got to give credit to Sinatra for making a movie like this in 62. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Sinatra. Say more. Know, I don't know much outside of the Rat Pack for, for yeah, Sinatra. Right, right. I mean, I mean, you, you know, here's a guy who's a Rat Pack. He's, you know, he's a, you know, yeah. he's the most popular singer in the world. And he's going to go make this movie that is this strange. He yeah, owes somebody a favor. He owes somebody <laughs> right, right, a favor. Uh, uh, exactly, you know. And, um, you know, um, one of the things I was going to mention that ties into the idea of, of also maybe Bennett Marco being controlled by Janet Lee mm-hmm. is another very bizarre scene in the movie where he's talking about his reading habits. Mm-hmm. And he's whipping out all these books, like I'm um, reading this and this. And it's it, they're crazy titles. You know, it's all these mm-hmm. very, you know, which tells me like, but Bennett Marco in the movie does not strike me as intellectual. intellectual. He does not strike yeah. me as a character who's going to yeah. be a reader. Yeah. Okay. He's not presented that. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we get to his house and, you know, he's, he's, he's talking about all these books he's reading and they're bizarre. I mean, they're very, very, I mean, it's, it's a very weird eclectic group of books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that to me is another sign that he is being triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he's being controlled. That, that they're they're giving him titles or references. It's 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 just another one of those. We, I mean, not enough people, I think, talk about this with him with Janet Lee. But I mean, it's another weird moment where it's like it doesn't make sense. And they, right. you know, there, there's an element of it that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. and um, I think that also ties into the the relationship with Janet Lee of how everything about her and him is off. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I think that, you know, when we talk about the, you know, the, the nature of the Manchurian candidate, you know, I think Ben Marco is also maybe the next Manchurian candidate. Yeah. I mean, well, you mentioned like everyone in that platoon was brainwashed, right? Well, everyone was brainwashed. Right. So, you know, we would assume that there would be fail safes and backups been in, right? Like you wouldn't put all your eggs in this one irritating, arrogant basket. You would absolutely have, you know, someone else back up. And, and also there are probably other um, duties that these tools 
are are going to be you know used to to affect or you know jobs did the movie required to do did the movie talk about any of that any like go into the background of like the other members of the platoon no, just, i remember i remember we, the black dude i remember yeah. you know he mm-hmm. had the nightmare and then i don't i, I mean did i miss something no they, 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 he was really the only other member of the platoon other than raymond shaw that they really you know brought in but but i think it's a question we're supposed to ask right like okay is it possible that these other men were brainwashed purely to support the story that Raymond Shaw is this war hero to put Raymond Shaw in a position to execute this presidential nominee? Or is there a chance that the conspiracy or that, you know, this was simply one tool that they are going to use to destabilize American democracy, but, you know, having men, uh, heads of households, you know, captains of industry, whatever, people and men in position of power, um, you know, who have been conditioned by us is going to unseat American society purely by a function of the way that they move through culture. You know, it, it isn't necessarily going to take um, the assassination of a presidential candidate for this. Like, I think the film, you know, does suggest that, you know, like we should we should not leave the theater or get up off our couch having watched it convinced that the danger has passed, that it has been eliminated. In fact, exactly. the danger is worse because because of the feminine threat mm-hmm. and the threat of the unknown, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. the you mentioned, and Paul, I think you mentioned too, um, uh, Melvin, the character of Melvin, who is the Black dude from the platoon. And so, you know, the first time I watched this movie, I noted his relatively, like, seamless integration into that platoon as well as the black psychiatrist who's only in a couple of scenes see it's her good marshall looking brother in there i was like that yes i know listen that hair was smooth it was smooth he was smooth with it you know and i was like okay there's something interesting going on here too i mean we want to emphasize like nothing just happens when you put uh, a narrative together, whether you're making choices consciously or unconsciously, but particularly so when we're talking about media like film and TV. When it comes to casting, there are very deliberate choices being made. And so, yes, there it, it absolutely means something that you have a black psychiatrist here, you know, who is going to be, you know, the entry into understanding the double consciousness of these men who have been deployed. And that we see Melvin, you know, as a black soldier who's also undergone that situation. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, okay, there's no way 1962, this one black dude is, um, is like better received in this platoon full of white dudes, you know, than someone like, Raymond Shaw like where's where's the tension there but it is important for like the myth making in the movie that like we are presented with this like kind of utopian cultural homogeneity right listen (laughs) are trying to break apart listen I listen okay let's go back to the garden scene White mm-hmm. lady, white lady garden society, right? Yeah. This black man on that stage during that uh-huh. time, I was like, something is very off. Even before they had shifted gears to let us know, mm-hmm. you know, it was like Russians and the, the Chinese like was in this space, right? Mm-hmm. Even before that, I knew. So I was like, 
And I was like, okay, is the movie just going to act like that they are not in a, like, the political space in which they're right. operating, like, the 60s? Right. Like, I'm like, but you're operating in the political space, but then you're just going to act like black folks are just seamlessly here. But the thing, but what was just so fascinating with that, I was like, oh, okay, I see the story you're telling. They said, okay, we've got our, the blacks under control, but mm-hmm. it's this outside threat. Maybe women right. are the bigger threat. Maybe mm-hmm. the Russians are the, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but they really just allowed black men to just exist in this space like, as well, like, yeah. I'm like, what is happening here? Well, during, well I, I, I'll, I'll toss that one historical thing that, that maybe the movie was trying to tap into, mm-hmm. which is Harry Truman integrated the military. Yeah. And that would have been in, that would have been in 40. 647. Mm-hmm. There may have been a little bit of nod to that. Um, Korea, Korea happened when? Give me the dates again for so the, Korean the Korean War. The Korean War was uh, like 51 to 53. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, and um, the truce was in 53. Um, gotcha. And so uh, the movie takes place in 62. So it's, you know. But they're still putting us in the 50s. We're the movie, yeah, I have to, I have to remember back, the movie setting is like in the like 51, right. 52, something there. But, right. So there would have been there would have been integrated units. No, I understand. I understand that. But I'm saying it, I, in fact, I think that, you know, the the fact that integration would have happened so recently. Yes. You know, compared to the timeline of the movie makes it even more likely that there would have been racial tensions That's you true. Know, in that platoon. Right. You know, and in the halls of power, like I just, you know. It, it seems to me it's a deliberate omission to suggest that the tension in that unit came and it seemed kind of class based, right? That it's Raymond Shaw and his sort of upper class, you know, entitlement um, that is the problem for the working, more working class men, more masculine men of the unit mm. versus this one lone black soldier. But you right. reminded me, Kashana, of that, you know, that garden scene. There's a black woman in that group too. And I'm like, if there's any group that I don't believe is, you know, just whining and dining each other, happy-go-lucky, you know, kissing and hugging. It is a group of older white women, older privileged white women in the Northeast in a garden society. There is no way that black woman would have been part of that group. There's a great discussion about how that scene was changed from the book. Oh, because the book, the book had a, and again, I'm only, this is only from second sources. I did not read mm-hmm. the book. Sure. But the book does a very racial element to that scene mm-hmm. where they have white women serving black women. And, and, and it's almost like a double. It goes back to the doubling of everything right. in the scene. And, and when they made the movie, they felt that it would be too, um, it was, it, it, they felt it'd be too shocking and, and controversial to have it be that um, sort of uh I don't even know what the word is. Um, in, all, in all of this, in all of this movies over the top grandness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We and can't they, have white hydrangea society. <laughs> right. Dream, dream imagery. Um, we killing presidents. Yes. We're wow. killing president. The Russians not, at, we yes. got the Pavlov Institute of Russia. Right. Drugging not, our soldiers. Uh-huh. Right. But we're not going to we have, can't have these white folks serving yeah. these black folks. Yes. Yes. And, and, and it was it was. a it, And so they, they 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 decided to switch that scene up because they felt right. it would not so even get by distinct. the censors or get by the right. public, or they just they just tweaked it. And so they but it, there, there is a there is a whole thing about that in the book about how that scene did a flip on the racial dynamics of that. Right. Moment. OK, I got to read this book now because 
I'm, I'm even, like, I haven't been able to, I love more. yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you the Cliff Notes versions. I'm gonna send you like page numbers and be like, okay, you gotta read this passage. Please okay. do. Yo, we have to move on to the freakouts. We're gonna resume the discussion and the bonus. So for those of you who are femme freak, Patreon supporters, you're gonna get to hear us talk more in the bonus, but my mind has been blown and I'm gonna have trouble putting it back together. Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna take a few seconds. I'm gonna try and, you know, get myself back into a position where I can host things. I didn't even get to my party line comment. We're going to get to it in the bonus. So, you know, you got to you gotta subscribe, folks. That's right. So we're going to be right back with some freak outs. Hey there, podcast family. While you're enjoying the show today, why not head on over to Patreon and sign up to be part of the crew that makes the magic happen? That's right. When you become a subscriber, you offer us the help we need to keep making the show. So moonwalk on over to patreon.com slash femfreak and sign up today. And now back to the show. Okay, now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, infuriating us, really just tickling our internal ivories. So Paul, I know you have a freak out and you said that your freak out um, was tangentially related, maybe? Two, so I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you go first. Ebony, I may have talked to you about this before, mm-hmm. but a book came out last year called Chaos. Yeah, by Tom O'Neill, and the subtitle is Chaos, and the subtitle is Charles Manson, CIA, and the Secret History of the Sixties. Come on now, it will blow your mind, and I do not say that lightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book will shock you about what he discovers in revisiting not only Manson but a bunch of stuff around Manson. And it is whatever you think you know about that story and about mm-hmm. that historical event, it'll change. The reason I bring it up though is, and I'm not going to go into the whole subplot, I mean, the whole narrative of the book, but anyway, he ends up proving what MK Ultra was about. Mm. And MK Ultra, for those of you who don't know, was a CIA operation in the United States, which is, of course, illegal. But was a CIA operation to, it was a mixture of, some people say it was about torture in the sense of trying to figure out how to get people to confess or reveal things that they were trying to hide. But really, it was also about, and I'm not even making this Mm -hmm. up, creating assassins and creating people to do things that they didn't even know they were doing through hypnosis, drugs, and suggestion. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It was an unbelievably horrific experiment on the American yep. public. Yeah, absolutely. And he proves it. And he proves it in a way that no one else has proved. Mm-hmm. And because he finds, he find he found a, I, I love to use this word, tranche of letters mm-hmm. from the former head of the UCLA psychiatry department to his handler at the CIA talking about the things that he was able to accomplish. Mm. Yeah. And that's just, you know, part of the book. But the whole hypnosis suggestion, creating assassins, creating people to do things that they didn't even know they were doing, directly relates to Manchurian Candidate. It's what the yeah. whole story's about. Yeah. And, a real uh, story. It, Absolutely, it was. And yep. it is. It is. It and is it wasn't a, the other. And that's what I hate about a lot of these movies where we always made it seem like, oh, these Russians are doing this. Oh, <laughs> right. the communists. We do, motherfucker. We doing it. Go ahead, go ahead, Paul. My bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, those crazy Russians! Look at what they're about. Right. It's like we're the ones doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I would suggest Chaos by Tom O'Neill. It is a brilliant book. It is heavily researched, 
And I've read a bunch of the reviews about it. And what's funny is so many of the reviews of this book pretend like he doesn't blow the lid off some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he really is getting kind of a, they're, they're not treating him, this book like it should be treated. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, 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 real, it's really amazing. Oh, of course um, not. When has truth ever enraged? I mean, this country, I'm just thinking about all the right. all the truths of all the things that this country has done. Like, right. I, I, don't, I don't know what what will, you know, mm-hmm. COINTELPRO. Yeah, right, right, right. Like, and he gets into that, too. That's a, another part of the book, too. COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think like one of the discussions that was never at least in my corner like i hate when people do this when they say like oh why aren't people talking about this and then it turns out oh it's just the people on your twitter feed dumbass that aren't talking okay but it seems to me that there was not nearly enough attention paid um from the beginning of this pandemic and i'm gonna i'm gonna make it clear i am waxed and vaxxed i believe in science okay but taking seriously the hesitation that some communities felt at trusting the government and trusting that's right um the medical establishment like there are real reasons why certain groups of people have known that they have been they have been lied to they have been led astray straight up poison exactly bodies used in the service of white supremacy and capitalism. And so it is it is not surprising that we were not able to make inroads, you know, initially anyway, with certain communities. Now, as I said, I'm vexed, you know, I believe in the science, but I'm saying there was not enough, you know, because to have that conversation would have required spending more time talking about things not just Henrietta Lacks and what they did with her sales. Absolutely. And beyond Tuskegee was not even the example to use. Like we got so many others. Right. You know, (laughs) so I mean fertility, sterilization. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um I'm gonna I'm gonna post uh, a link to the book that that Paul is talking about and you know um a link to a couple of other things along these lines because it's very easy to dismiss this kind of stuff is just like, you know, fringe conspiracy theory stuff. Right. You know, and yeah, I mean, you go into all of it with your your third eye open, you know, with your critical, you know, faculties engaged. But the fact is, there are some things that we all need to be aware of as citizens of this country, things that have been done in our name. And, you know, if you haven't heard of MK Ultra, like, it's going to blow your mind. It will blow your mind. Blow your mind. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Now, Paul, you said you had two freakouts, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Okay, so there's that one. The yeah. other one is an older book. I just want to mention it because whenever I get a chance to promote this book, I will. If it's Don DeLillo, I'm going to beat your ass. It's called <laughs> Down by the River. Okay. And it's by Charles Bowden. Mm. And it is a story about, well, it's initially about a family and a DEA agent who has his younger brother killed in a carjacking. But it turns into this very detailed, researched book about how the cartels basically exploded in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is the best. It, I, I feel it will be the best book you will ever read about the drug trade and the cartels. It, it is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, it, it will blow your mind on mm-hmm. what this guy finds out. Um, It is disturbing Mm -hmm. um, and it will lead you to believe that um, 
I hate to say, you know, I hate to be hopeless about certain problems. Sure. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) pause, pause. It's hard to imagine how it's hard to imagine how Central America and Mexico are ever going to get out of this situation they're in with crime and the cartels. And, um, it is a brilliant book, though, and, it's and how we're di- and how we're directly implicated in all that. All the Shah's men. I think all the Shah's men, you know, when I learned the history of our involvement of basically the decimation of the Middle East, uh-huh. even before anybody called the Middle East, the Middle, you know, what I'm saying like, mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, that that was another book that was really like mm. just eye opening and shocking. Like, oh, my gosh, oh. So all, all the Shah's men. I'm writing, um, yeah. I'm writing it down. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. One of those chilling ones like, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. we really did. We did this. We, we did, did this. It. Yeah. 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 Good for us. Woo. Good for us. You know, <laughs> yeah, on the back. when it comes to destabilizing other regimes, no one does it better. We're not new to this shit. You know, exactly. We have we have perfected it. All right. Kashana, what is your freak out? My freak out doesn't even compare to what what, you know, what's been said here. But I think I'm <laughs> thinking about that. My Twitter thread has been freaking out these past couple of days and I didn't even know mm-hmm. what was happening. But apparently somebody has suggested that um, people in the academy shouldn't be asking for money when they're doing speaking engagements and doing different kinds of events. You know, people are saying that we should just accept this as a part of like the free labor system. What in the academia. hell? I I yeah. know. I know. I'm like, where they do that at? Like, where they do this right. labor shit at? I mean, not me. So and then, of course, then people, you know, really clearly outline that I believe this, you know, it's a cis heterosexual white male talking mm-hmm. from a lot of privilege and right. not under not understanding what all the all these things, you know, structural inequalities and mm-hmm. oppressions and how, you know, thinking we think about we said double conscious, all, all that kind of stuff. They're not even thinking about what that means, because I'm mean, in child care being a woman like so many. There was a woman that had a really powerful thread and she was like, I have to be paid if you want me to attend because I have nobody to keep my children. So. Like yeah. I don't have extra money for childcare, like so. And also, like even if I if I am so wealthy, Jeff Bezos asked me for pocket change. If you think that my work is of value enough to speak to your audience, then it is worth paying me. And listen, I understand. I'm a program manager, and my my day job, I work for women in film. We are a nonprofit, you know. So you do ask people when they can, you know, to come speak, you know, be on panels, whatever. And sometimes you don't have a lot of money. But that is so much different than Harvard with their billion dollar endowment, you know, not wanting to pay their, you know, grad students, you know, their adjuncts that, you know, their speakers. And let's be clear, people have no trouble paying like, you know, the Jordan Petersons of the world when they want to get them to come speak. But when I know, learned that when I but, learned that. Evidence. But when Dr. Kashana Gray is on the bill, suddenly they don't want to come up off that check. Come on. Like, come on. Come yeah. on. Don't let it happen to me ever again. Yeah, ever well, again. It, it's, it's almost like they don't believe in the free market. Right. Okay. Right. Right. I'm like, I got my my market rate right now. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it's like, wow. It's like, wow. Wow. Weird. Some like older white dudes uh, suddenly all of a sudden don't believe in the free market and think that people of color ought to work for free. All of a sudden. All of a sudden. Wow. Well, you know, going back to the old days, like, listen, we ought to be glad, you know, you have a job that pays you a check. Why do I got to add to it? But yeah, it's, right. it's, it's galling when the the lack of awareness of like how much goes into preparing, yes. you know, you know, 
taking the time to prepare remarks. You know, if you're doing a keynote address or whether you're part of a panel, you know, taking your time out from your job, from your family, and then to not be offered anything, not, you know, airfare, hotel, not, you know, and some of these people will nickel and dime you to death. So they'll, sure they'll give you some little, you know, um, you know, basic stipend, but then you, you don't even get free tickets to the event, you know, that they're oh my gosh, oh like, my it gosh, is, it is insane to me. And again, you like, we all know this, right? Exposure doesn't pay anybody's rent. So just having me on a bell somewhere. It's not doing that. Ain't doing yeah. that on his rent. You know, that's, that's, that's <laughs> none of my books. So um, is there a particular Twitter thread you want to link people to? Like, you know, a conversation? Send us the link. We'll put it in the show notes um, so that people can can check that out and, and get informed. But yeah. Will do. Okay, I don't have a freak out this week. Y'all know I watch the same thing week on week on week on week, which is what? European crime dramas. So I got nothing new to say to y'all. You know, if, if, like I've said it all either here on the podcast or on Twitter. Follow me at Ebony Aster if you care what I think. And I know you don't. But if you want to submit a freak out, submit it at feministfrequency.com slash freak out. That's F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Kishana and Paul, if people want to find you online, where should they go? And you know what, Kishana, I'm asking this question to you because Paul is, talk about undercover brother. That dude is not online anywhere you can find. So I'm not even going to ask him. Listen, <laughs> listen to his freakouts. I see why. He's like, I know. Uh, y'all can find me. Listen, y'all, we are recording this in Zoom. Kishana and I both have our cameras on. Paul going to try and play like his camera doesn't work. Whatever. I think that the substance of this episode can, will let you know that Paul is like, listen, I don't want to ain't gonna activate me. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, don't use my name. Don't <laughs> But Kishana, where can people find you online? Yes, Twitter. I hang out on Twitter at, you know, Kishana Gray, K-I-S-H-O-N-N-A-G-R-A-Y. Uh, you can, usually you can find me there. All the social media, you can just search my name. You'll find me. Yeah, I'm right. friendly. You can talk to me. She is friendly and so smart. Hey. Okay. Um, Paul, is there anything you want to shout out? People, you know, I took it away from you. I know you're not on social media, but is there anything? I mean, not really. I mean, I got a Facebook page. I mean, I got my email, but I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not really set up yet to be totally. uh, To be a public figure? Public figure. It'll happen soon, but not quite yet. Um, I will say this. I mean, I already have kind of a public figure in my own way, but that's, that's a different story. It, you know what? Those those headshots they post in the paper of recent arrest doesn't count. Or maybe it does. Maybe they do. I will say this. Paul is someone, if you ever have the opportunity to meet him in person and listen to him talk about The Shining, it is, will change your life. So because y'all don't know him, if you would like to send questions to me that I can send to Paul, and then Paul can just I answer will those answer questions. Them. He will. And you'll regret asking those questions when he starts blowing up your, your email inbox. I love right. it so much. It's so good. Okay. Next week, Anita is going to be back. We're going to be getting into the Eternals. Can't wait. Y'all know I love a big budget. Shoot them up. You know, superheroes. People in tights. People in costume. Love it. I well, that's weird because I'm wearing tights and I'm in costume right now. Boy, if you don't shut love up. It, love it. Love <laughs> it. Our show is engineered by Rob Perra. Carrie Stimson provides technical support. Our artwork is by Jamie Barron. And our intro music is by Phil Circuit. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>